Because your name, Lord Jesus Christ, is the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's why we have been singing praises to you and your name today. Because you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the only risen Lord, the only risen person who reigns supreme and sovereign over your people. We have been praising you today. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what Easter is all about. As we open our hearts and our minds now for a few moments, asking you to please teach us. We thank you that your truth is a life truth. And we long for it to make a huge difference in each of our lives. I pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for glorious worship this morning. Would you agree it's been uh, very special this morning as we worship together? Children, we want to dismiss you now, little ones through grade four, to some wonderful adults who are prepared to receive them. Little ones up through grade four, if you'd like to go at this time. As you may know, the New Testament opens with four different accounts of the life of the person known as Jesus Christ. Two of those accounts are written by men who walked the journey of life with him, his disciples. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and John. Sandy has been reading for us from John chapter 20. And if you brought your Bibles, I would encourage you please to open there, John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And I think you'll find John 20 on about page 768 or so. Uh, Meanwhile, we as Americans particularly are visually oriented. Stories come alive when we can see them. So there have been numerous numbers of dramas that have been prepared for the story of Jesus. Would you watch just this one that focuses on the 20th chapter? After this, Joseph, who was from the town of Arimathea, asked Pilate if he could take Jesus' body. Joseph was a follower of Jesus, but in secret because he was afraid of the Jewish authorities. Pilate told him he could have the body, so Joseph went and took it away. Nicodemus, who at first had gone to see Jesus at night, went with Joseph, taking with him about 100 pounds of spices, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. The two men took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices, according to the Jewish custom of preparing a body for burial. There was a garden in the place where Jesus had been put to death, and in it there was a new tomb where no one had ever been buried. Since it was the day before the Sabbath, and because the tomb was close by, they placed Jesus' body there. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. She went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. They've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him.
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture which said that he must rise from death. While she was still crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb. And saw two angels there, dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? they asked her. They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who was it that you were looking for? She thought he was the gardener, so she said to him, If you took him away, sir. Tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Mary. Rabboni. Do not hold on to me. Because I have not yet gone back up to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to him who is my father and their father. My God and their God. The most important question this weekend we have been Who is this man known as Jesus? Last week we saw Peter's answer to that question, and this week we're looking at what this woman, Mary Magdalene, said about that question. There are some notes in your worship folder if you'd like to take them. It gives you a place for you to jot down some thoughts that may come to your mind over these next moments as we look into God's Word. Who was this Mary who came to the tomb, and why did she come so early that morning? Dr. Luke tells us that this Mary was one of several women whose lives were profoundly changed by Jesus. In fact, he tells us several tormenting spirits had been driven out of her. So she had a very special relationship with Jesus. John tells us that she was one of a few who had stood at the cross and watched him die. Matthew tells us she was one of only a very small number who accompanied his body to the tomb and she sat and watched them bury him and then seal the tomb with that stone. So she knew exactly where the tomb was. Probably most of us in this room have visited gravesides. We do that because the person who was buried there was special to us. That's why she came. Jesus was very special to her. But her tears, that's another matter. Oh, yes, uh, tears, of course, because of the manner in which he died. Tears because she thought he was perhaps gone forever. But then when she looked in the tomb and found that his body was gone, what could be worse than a grave robber having come and pilfered his body? Tears at the thought of what that might mean. The scripture there tells us in John chapter 20 
that she thought she was speaking to a gardener, a person who was there in the garden when she, when she said, uh, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And then that person responded simply with just one word, her name, Mary. Probably you've had the experience. You're in a crowded shopping mall or maybe a room crowded like this and you hear your name. Someone calls you or at least they call out your name. And immediately the crowd around you seems to disappear. You have been singled out. Special attention has been aimed at you as someone has called your name. And you turn quickly to see who was it. Do you know them? Why did they call your name? From the time that we've all been little boys and little girls, we have learned to respond to the calling of our names and we've learned to pay close attention to the tone of voice that was used with the calling of your name, right? You remember when your mother or your father called you by name, maybe even using your middle name, remember that? And you knew that it probably wasn't good news? And then there was that tone of voice that said, I've been looking for you, I'm so glad I found you, I have something special for you. I don't know the tone of voice that Jesus used when he called Mary's name, but clearly it awakened something inside of her. She had heard her name before from his lips. Immediately she sensed, he's here. It's, it's possible what he had said before that he would actually rise from the dead. I find it so interesting, though, that her response to his calling of her name, she didn't respond with his name, Jesus she didn't respond with Jesus Christ. She didn't respond with my Lord. She responded with Rabboni, teacher. We've all had a lot of teachers in our lives, haven't we? Some, they had the formal responsibility to teach us. Teachers, professors, principals, assistant principals. Do you remember one in your life that you just particularly liked? And you just seemed to absorb whatever that teacher had to tell you, huh? It wasn't hard for you to get very good grades in that class. You hung on every word that teacher said to you. And you probably can remember several teachers that no matter how hard you tried, you just couldn't get anything. The chemistry just didn't work very well between you and that teacher, remember? And then there were probably some teachers in your lives who they really weren't teachers. Maybe you played a sport and they were your coach. And they took a special interest in you. And something welled up inside of you to give your very best. Or maybe you were in a choir or, or in a band. Uh, someone who had influence in your life awakened inside of you a desire to become all that you could be. May I suggest that's what it was like for Mary and Jesus. Rabboni. It doesn't mean professor or classical teacher. It means influencer, mentor, coach, rabbi. Teacher, John, the same one who tells us the story of Mary, began his gospel account by saying, in the beginning, meaning before there was anything else, was the Word, logos, truth, knowledge. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word came here in the person of Jesus Christ, living truth for the purpose of proclaiming truth to us. My friends, while it's true, the reason we have a cross in the front of this church is to celebrate that Jesus Christ accomplished with His death the possibility of your and my salvation. 
But his first purpose for coming here was not to die. His first purpose was to speak. To speak God's truth into a very confused world. Would you agree with that? He came here to tell us the truth about God, since there were so many opinions about God. He came to tell us the truth about ourselves, because we're pretty confused about that. (laughs) He came to tell us the truth about the problem that exists between us and God, our sin nature, and why we just can't seem to get that right. Then He came to be the truth bridge to make it possible for the problem to be taken care of. And then he rose from the dead to prove that everything he had said was true. And he proved it with his resurrection. I'd like us to look this morning at just a few of the things that he said that were so powerfully truthful that it changed Mary's life. And 2,000 years later, if you will grab it, I promise it can change your life. It's probably not very often that you stand in front of family or friends or co-workers and you say, I am, and you don't follow that statement with something emotional. I am angry. I am happy. I am hungry. It's very rare that you probably stand to say, I am, and you talk about your identity. That's what Jesus did. You'll see them in your notes. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, that doesn't make much sense, does it? Except in that context, let me set the stage for you. One day before, Jesus had did something that they're still talking about 2,000 years later. You see, by that time, Jesus was pretty popular. And no matter where he went in the towns around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Tiberias, Bethsaida, a crowd would gather quickly waiting to see the next miracle. He had to actually go up on a hillside away from everybody in order to have a little time with his disciples. That's what he did in John chapter 6. But it didn't take long, and some people spotted him up there, and so the people started coming, lots of people. And John tells us there was more than 5,000 people that gathered around, and he taught them through the day. I think it's safe for us to assume he healed some sick people, maybe gave sight to some blind people. By the end of the day, he said to his disciples, these are hungry folks. They've been here all day. Let's feed them. (laughs) One of the disciples uh, perhaps feeling a little ornery, said, Are you kidding? Feed all these people that would take a whole year's wages to buy enough bread, and then how could we possibly do it? Jesus, come on! But another one, maybe he was actually making a little bit fun of Jesus, said, Well, there's a little boy here, and he brought his little sack lunch. Maybe that would do. Jesus said, Bring him. And Andrew brought him, and he opened up his little basket, (laughs) five little biscuits and two little fish. That'll do just fine. And he held it up and he thanked God for it and he prayed over it and blessed it and it just started multiplying. And he called his disciples, quickly get some baskets and distribute the food. And John and Matthew both tell us that all those people had more than enough to eat. In fact, they gathered 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's why the very next day, Jesus was back in that same area and a bunch of people found him. We've been looking for you. He said, you're hungry again, aren't you? (laughs) But let me tell you, I can do far more than just feed you one more time. Let me tell you, I am the bread of life. And if you follow me, you'll never go hungry again. But he wasn't talking about, what are we going to have for lunch today? He was talking about that deepest need in every single one of us. 
that we just can't seem to quench. I was in a a store yesterday looking at some of those huge HD big screens. They're really quite amazing. I don't have one. And I'll be quick to say, as I stood and looked at it, I thought, I don't even know where I'd put it in my house. But then I thought about it would be awfully hard to turn it off and get away from that television and do something profitable. Hmm. Do you find yourself passionately chasing after the things that you believe will somehow quench the deep thirst to be happy, to be content, to feel fulfilled in life, to feel purposeful? And have you yet discovered that no amount of money, no amount of purchasing can satisfy that deep need in you? Have you figured that out yet? Why? That deep need was placed there by God Himself and you can't meet it with stuff. Only the risen Jesus Christ can meet that need. And when He does, He becomes the bread of life meeting your deepest need. Has anybody in the room experienced that in your relationship with Jesus Christ? That's right. That's right. We have a team that just came back last night from one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti that is still, as you know, recovering from a devastating earthquake. What have they been doing there? They've been feeding folks and building housing for folks and helping folks. But every team we send comes back with the same story. How can the poorest people on the planet be some of the most content people we've ever met? How can they gather on Sunday to worship and they didn't eat on Saturday, but they lift up their hands and they praise Him? It's because He is the only one that can meet the deepest need. Amen? I am the bread of life, He said. So has He met your need yet? In the 8th chapter of John, He did it again. This time He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness. Now my guess is, my dear friends, that you are understanding what that might mean as you try to live your life in a very dark world. Have you yet become fairly skeptical that no matter who the person is that's trying to sell you something or do business with you, with you, you doubt that what they're telling you is true? Huh? Have you begun to get to the place where when you buy things, you, the first thing you look at is the warranty, assuming it's going to break down fairly soon? It's the world that we live in, my friends. And that's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world that can pierce and penetrate your darkness. Don't you love the fact that you flip the light switch on in a dark room and the darkness flees? I had the great privilege of being in Afghanistan. Now, maybe, oh, seven years ago, I had a dear friend who was a hydro engineer working up in the mountains, the remote mountains area that had no electricity. He'd been working for almost a year, and it just so happened I had the privilege of being there when he was ready to flip the switch. And he took me with him up a whole day's drive way up into the mountains there, I don't know that they'd ever seen very many white folks up in there. Now, he told me, we're going to get there. i got to put one little part in the generator, flip the switch, we go. Great. He put the one little part in, flipped the switch, and nothing happened. And there wasn't a store in two hours in any direction. And he said, you stay here, I'll be back in a couple hours. Oh, my. I'm surrounded by Muslim men wearing all those interesting things we see on television. Nobody can speak English. I'm going to stay here. It took him about six hours because where he finally went, the part wasn't there. 
it was starting to get dusk. And I was starting to think, my dear Dawn and I have had the last meal together we're ever going to have. They're going to bury me in the mountains of Afghanistan. Nobody's going to ever find me here. And finally he came back. I'm sorry, he said. By the way, we had there's no cell phone communication up in that place. So I really never thought I'd ever see him again. He put the part in, and then he said to the chief of the tribe, would you like to flip the switch? Now, now we were, of course, alongside a little stream because it was a hydro plant, and the village was over there, maybe 500 yards along a hillside. So he said to all of the men who were sitting around, let's go outside and watch. Obviously, they had already run all the wires, and those people already had the light switches on in all their homes, even though they'd never had a light turned on in their house. The chief flipped the switch, and we ran outside. All across the hill, light in the middle of the night in a village that had never had light before. You could hear the cheers coming across the valley. Well, now it's almost 9 o'clock at night. There's no way we're going back down to that mountain pass to go back to Kabul. So guess where we stayed the night? In one of those houses. Do you think there was any way there anybody was going to turn the light off that night? <laughs> Every house was lit all night long. And they got up all through the night. And I, I watched it happen in the little house where I stayed. And they just look at that light. What is it? How could it be? I am the light of the world, Jesus said. It means I am the living truth that can penetrate the darkness of your despair. The hope that can, that can heal the woundedness of your heart. That can push back the skepticism and the doubt that you find encompassing you and sucking the life out of you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And in the same chapter, a couple of verses later, he said, And if you'll follow my teachings, uh, you'll discover them to be truthful. And my truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Amen? Have you yet discovered the power of God's truth? First, to penetrate your skepticism and your doubt. And then secondly, to set you free from the darkness that so easily creeps in on you. Why is the number one problem in America depression? In, the, in one of the freest, wealthiest nations on the planet? Because the darkness encroaches so easily. And as we look around, it's so difficult for us to find any ray of hope. But Jesus says, I can step into your darkness with all that I am, the resurrected Jesus. Amen? In the 10th chapter of John, he did it again. <laughs> he was evidently in a place where there were some sheep and some shepherds. And he said, I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for my sheep. And my sheep know me and I know them. Now, we don't see a lot of sheep herders in this part of the country. When's the last time you saw one? Do you know that sheep are among the most unusual animals on the planet? They frighten so easily. Just a little sound can frighten them. And when they get frightened, they run and they don't look where they're running. They'll run right into a tree or a wall. When they're eating, they don't pay much attention to what they're eating. They'll eat all the way down to the grass, right to the dirt, and keep eating the roots and eat dirt and all. When they're thirsty, they'll drink anything that looks like water. It doesn't matter how rancid it is. And they're constantly afraid. So what does the shepherd do? <laughs> Everything. The shepherd is responsible to lead them to food that's good for them. The shepherd is responsible to bring them to water that's clean and good for them. 
The shepherd is responsible to do the very best he or she can to protect that flock of sheep so they'll be quiet and content. The shepherd is responsible to protect that flock even to the point of his or or her own life. Do you get the picture yet? So when Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd, I know how to lead you to good food for you. I know how to meet your needs. I know how to protect you and care for you. And I will, in fact, I did give my life for you. I'm the good shepherd. Have you yet allowed him to be your shepherd? Or do you still feel somehow down deep inside you are responsible for yourself? Like a little two-year-old, I can do it myself. I don't need your help. But the truth is we all need his help. We all have experienced the broken heart, haven't we? The fearful nights. I'm the good shepherd. And I've laid down my life to be able to care for you, protect you. In the 11th chapter, he did it again. He said something really strange. Nobody else had ever said it before. I'm the resurrection and the life, he said. You see, a few days before, he had been with his disciples and a runner had come. A person who had come running with a very urgent message. (gasps) Come quickly, Jesus, come quickly. Your friend Lazarus is very sick. And he didn't. Not that day, not the next day, not the day after. And his close friends were very confused. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were very dear friends of his. He had stayed in their home many times. Why would he not go? He said God would be glorified, be patient. Then he said some days later, it's time for us to go now. Lazarus has fallen asleep. One of the disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, let's not wake him up. Sleep is good for a sick person. Have you ever noticed that Jesus usually used the word sleep for what we call death? There's a very important reason for that. When you're sleeping, you are still very much alive, right? Right? See, some of you are sleeping right now. You're very much alive. From God's perspective, when you, what we call die, you are still very much alive, right? Because he has placed within your physical body a soul, a spirit that never dies. So at the moment when your physical body stops functioning, you are still just as alive as you were before. In fact, maybe even more so because you're no longer restrained by this dying body. He's sleeping. Let's go. And they went. When he arrived there, he asked, where have you laid him? They put him in a tomb, very much like they put Jesus' body in a tomb. And as they were going to the tomb, Mary and Martha said, He's been dead and in that tomb already four days. And then Jesus said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they sleep. (laughs) And then he stood in front of that tomb, rolled the stone away. And he called Lazarus out and he proved his authority over life and death as a man dead five days came walking out of that tomb. Amen? I'm the resurrection and the life. There's another word that Jesus used with regard to what we call death. It's the word perish. 
perish means eternally separated from God. You see, what Jesus said over and over and over again, I have come so you can have life. I have paid the full price so you can be forgiven. I have made come to be the bridge between you and God. Trust me, I'll bring you to God. I'm the resurrection and the life. And when you finally sleep, I will escort you into the very presence of God for all eternity. I promise, he said. But he had said in that eighth chapter of John, if you choose to remain in your sin and not believe I am who I claim to be, then you'll die in your sin and you will perish. You'll be eternally separated from me. A choice. Our choice. You see, one more time in the 14th chapter of John, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Part of the reason that Jesus Christ came, God incarnate, was to proclaim there is only one God, the creator of all, the author of life. He's a holy God. And I've come to proclaim the only way to that God. Salvation, forgiveness of sin through me, Jesus. Resurrection to prove my identity, my authority over Satan, sin and death, and to make it possible for you to be drawn into a relationship with that holy God. I'm the way, the only way. I'm the truth upon which all other truth is based. And I am the life, the only one who can give life for all of eternity. Amazingly, when God created us, He gave us something no other species has. The ability to think and reason and choose, even choosing to say no to God. A fish can't say, tomorrow I want to be a bird. A tree can't say, I want to grow upside down. (laughs) But human beings can say, no, God, no. I will do it my way. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for giving me life and breath. But no, I want to be in charge of my life. And I will assume personal responsibility for my eternal destiny. I'll do it without you, God. Thank you very much. Amazingly, God loves us so much, he says, okay. But my offer continues to you until the very moment that you finally breathe your last. But then... You live with the results of your decision for all of eternity. That's why John also tells us that Jesus had said to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God, eternal life with God, unless he's born again, reborn spiritually by Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish eternally separated from God, but will have eternal life. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples, and I have it for you there in your notes, in the upper room, he said to them, in this world, you're going to have trouble. This is a very troubled, painful world. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, take courage. I, the bread of life, I, the light of the world, (laughs) I, the good shepherd, I, the resurrection and the life, I, the way, the truth and the life, I have overcome the world through my resurrection therefore take heart because i'm ready to walk the journey of life with you 
two questions I'd like us to close with this morning as we think about Easter weekend. First question. What key truths guide your life? Every single person living lives their life according to truth principles that they have decided are going to be the truth principles for them. Nobody can force you to believe anything. Nobody can reach inside your mind and your heart and force you, and God won't. So, if I was to give you a pen and invite you, what would you start listing as the key truths that guide your life? Is there life after what we call death? That's a key truth. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ true? That's a key truth. Does it have anything to do with you? That's a key truth. Does God love you? Can God meet the deepest need in your life? What are the key truths that guide your life? And the second question? Whose words are eternally reliable for you? I think I can pretty well promise almost all of us in this room that when it comes to the end of your life, you will have several days to think about it. For most of us, life will not suddenly end unexpectedly. Probably we will grow old and we will have plenty of time to think about life and what's beyond it. In that moment, my friends, in those days... As you look back, will you be glad you lived your life according to real truth, God's truth? And in those days, will you be glad that you early identified